Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, imagine a world where kākāpō wander in our backyards. Sounds fanciful, but some dream it could happen if we can turn around our catastrophic biodiversity loss. But here's the reality. We're in a race with Mexico to be the next country that's going to send a marine mammal extinct. Like, that is a terrible, terrible indictment. Our disappearing native species are explored in a docu-series launched today on Stuff called This Is How It Ends. More than 4,000 of our native species are at risk of extinction, from the famous Maui dolphin to the lesser-known eyelash seaweed. The series comes out just after the UN Biodiversity Conference, which is working on ways to halt the rapid collapse of the species and systems that sustain life on Earth. New Zealand does not have a great environment record at all. Unfortunately, when you look at world rankings and you look at the proportion of threatened species, New Zealand is ranked worst in the world, number one. We have lived in this country in a particular way that involves taking from the environment an extractive economy. And so what's left for nature is just less and less. But how do you cut through the doom and get people to do something about it? Well, today, The Detail talks to stuff journalist Andrea Vance and cameraman Ian McGregor about their year-long project to tell the stories of decline and action to stop the losses. We spend quite a bit of time, and I've done it myself, written quite a few stories about species in trouble in isolation, you know, written about the kakapo, written about the Maui dolphin. And then I did a story about um, the capture of six Antipodean albatross in fishing nets off the East Coast, which I just I just find really sad and really shocking because they're just an incredible bird and they're literally on the brink of extinction. They reckon that they're going to be extinct within 20 to 30 years. And I just thought, instead of writing about these in isolation, why not cover it in, in a lot more detail and, and in, in a more, more broad way. And New Zealand's landscapes and the habitat that they live in are just incredible. Like, who wouldn't want to spend their time doing that for a year? Um, and of course, Ian and I work together on, on many, many projects. And there's just, there's just no one better in the country to do that job. So, of course, we always say yes. And then we realise once we got the funding, all the problems that would come with. <laughs> what kind of problems, Ian? Can you talk about that? One of the major problems we had, from my point of view, is that the species that we were trying to document, there's not many of them and they're really hard to find. We would end up going to these really remote parts of New Zealand and try and find these these little creatures where there's not a lot of. And often they're small and move very fast and live in dark places. So normally when when we go out and film or photograph things, that's usually the fun bit and kind of the easy bit, you know, the, the rest of it comes afterwards. But with this project, definitely the actual doing was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but definitely one of the most fulfilling as well. This probably doesn't reflect very well on our professionalism. So we came right off the back of a series that we did on the election and we immediately went to Great Barrier Island and we pushed ourselves to the limit on that project. And we'd done, apart from making a couple of phone calls, we'd not really done much research. So we went up to Mount Hobson to film these incredible seabirds, black petrels, which are the seabird most at risk from commercial bycatch. We had to drag all our equipment up. We didn't plan that very well. It was a huge slog up the hill. And we were planning to spend a couple of nights up there 
with Biz Bell and her team who monitors them. She's been doing that for 25 years. Anyway, so we got there in the middle of the day. It was quite hot. And then we got talking to Biz and she's like, yeah, so we'll do this and then we'll we'll come back out tonight. And Ian and I looked at each other and we're like, oh. and she goes, yeah, they're, did you not know they're nocturnal? So, the, <laughs> so there were these... <laughs> jet black birds which we we had to film at night and we didn't have any of the right equipment we just we learned absolutely learned as we went and we learned the value of research and planning yeah so i mean it's a photographer's dream to shoot black birds in the middle of the night with no light so that went well that was the first one <laughs> did, did you get anything at all ian did you get anything out of that one uh, we got lots of pictures stumbling through the bush and head torches pulling birds out of burrows. Um, but you kind of you kind of want to see them in flight, you know. You want to see the the creatures at their best, not getting pulled out of their beds in the middle of the night and getting twink put on their heads. You could have had a, a crew from you know Richard Attenborough's team out there for six months, and you probably wouldn't have caught the right footage of them flying. Ian's footage is beautiful from the mountain, so he's kind of playing it down a little bit. But we keep saying to each other, we're kind of like a cut price um, Blue Planet or Richard Attenborough. There's <laughs> just two of us. So we do everything from like booking the travel to um, making the sandwiches for the packed lunch. And Ian, do you feel like you achieved what you set out to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, well, we haven't done it yet because part of what, what was set out to achieve was to draw attention to it. One of the big things... For me, I'm really passionate about care. I spent a lot of time up in the mountains when I was young and learning about the issues that they have around the lead poisoning. I had no idea, you know, 95% of juvenile care have really toxic levels of lead poisoning, you know, in areas like Arthur's Pass and Mount Cook Village. Why is that? (laughs) Well, basically, they're not where they're supposed to be because over time you know they've been fed in these areas that's brought them down and the lead is like a, a little hit of sugar for them so when they get into the lead flashings of the old buildings or the uh the weights on on car tires or things like that um it gives them a little rush and it poisons them but if we hadn't fed them to begin with then they wouldn't be hanging out in these areas um i mean the good not the good thing but one thing that we can do is actually treat it well we can stop feeding them so they don't come there but there are people who are uh, giving up their time to catch them and treat them they can inject the care with uh, something called collation treatment and that means the uh, the lead will attach itself to the solution and will excrete it out over a period of weeks and then they release them in a valley where there's no buildings and um, no people. So part of what the series was about was to show some of the issues, but show tangible things that we can do to help them. And with Kia's case, don't feed them, get rid of your lead flashings. uh, And then there are people out there catching them, taking them to the wildlife hospital and releasing them when they're, when they're fixed. So it's, it's something that just, really shouldn't happen and it's an example of how we as a species are interfering with all of them but you know andrea if you click on something like new zealand extinct species it's blooming depressing isn't it i mean i think the latest figure is that more than four thousand of our endemic and native native species are at risk of extinction i don't know if there's there's an update on that 
So were you conscious of telling these stories without it seeming all gloom and doom? Yeah, we were. We went into this with our eyes wide open to that because, you know, we're in the middle of COVID and, and, you know, you've got the climate crisis, which actually the biodiversity crisis is is the poorer cousin, if you like, of the of the climate crisis, because everyone's talk, everyone knows about climate change, everyone's talking about that. And then here we come along and we're going, hey, actually, there's this other crisis that's even worse than the climate crisis, and it's going to end up in humans eventually being extinct if we don't do something about it. So that's really, I mean, don't get much more doom and gloom than that. It's kind of the, mm-hmm. you know, we think COVID's a big story, but the extinction of the human race is probably, you know, the biggest story that you could imagine. And um, so we knew that when we went in, and the big thing. Um, about telling these kind of stories is you can't just slam people constantly with the bad news. You have to give them some kind of inspiration, some kind of hope for the future and, and some kind of agency, like what can I do to help? So so that's why we spent so much time with Department of Conservation and community and iwi groups. They're out there uh, saving species, they're caring for them, they're trying to recreate or restore their habitat. You know, like with the, the Takahe, it's, it's just the most incredible story of this crazy looking bird that they thought was extinct. You know, more than a century ago, they thought this bird was as dead as the dodo. And now there are 445 of them. You know, they're they're making, at the recovery center, they're making 40 or 50 of them a year. Like they're breeding them. Um, and then with the um, Has Tokoweka, the kiwi, you know, they, they're, they're so... There's so few of them. There's 400 of them left in the world, and they've got Operation Nest Egg, which is which is breeding them and is sending them into kiwi creches on remote islands. The black robin, we saw black robin on Rangitira Island, which you know they were down to, I think it was nine birds at one point, and now they're at 280. They got down to the the very last breeding pair, and and so the series also looks at you know using islands and fence sanctuaries or whatever as an incubator to bring species back to life. But, you know, the Maori point of view is, is that the right way to do it? You know, is it better to live in the environment and care for it rather than, you know, fence it off or island it off? That being said, the islands, the offshore islands have been really useful in saving species like the black robin. So we sort of explore that side of it as well. Yeah, we look, we looked at we looked at the future of conservation and and what you know if we if we are going to tackle this biodiversity crisis and and you know it is really slow and we were not inspired um, by what we saw in terms of society and government's actions but with Predator twenty fifty and jobs for nature and incentives and, and and impetus in an ideal world if it doesn't get worse if it starts to get better we'll move into a situation where we can scrap fence sanctuaries and we can bring creatures back to New Zealand that were once extinct on the mainland and we can start to live with them. And it was Kevin Haig from Forest and Bird actually kind of sit when we were interviewing him, he sort of set up his vision and we were talking about Zelandia because I live in Wellington and Zelandia means that I now have um, kaka and um, kereru in my front garden. And he was saying, wouldn't it be amazing if in, you know, a few decades time we had kakapo in our streets and kakapo, you know, just around us in, in, in our everyday lives. So that's, that's the dream. And that's yeah. what we're, we're trying to tell the story of the, of the, you know, the decline, but also the things that we could do and what we could look forward to in the future and what the future of conservation might look like. When we were communicating with each other before this, and you said 
New Zealand is frankly doing not much. We do have a biodiversity strategy, don't, though, don't we? We do. We pr- actually previously had a biodiversity strategy, which you hadn't heard of it. I certainly no. hadn't heard of it until I started researching for this project. Um, so we had one that was launched last August, and it's an incredible, that and the companion report that came along is an incredible piece of work. It's it's a really great stock take of where we're at and um, the problems and, you know, the, the huge decline and what, what types of species are at risk. And so we're, we're now supposed to be in the implementation stage of that. We interviewed Kiri Tapu Allen, the conservation minister, about, you know, what was happening next, like what's the next phase? And they do have the national policy statement on biodiversity, which will come out. I think it's it's been quite slow and it's had quite a lot of um, pushback, particularly from the rural sector and some local councils, I think. So she's asked officials to go back and do a stock take of where we're, where we're at, which I guess makes sense. She wants to know what what agencies are involved in tackling the biodiversity crisis, how much money we spend on it, you know, what community groups, what iwi. But I just kind of think we're, you know, we're at the point where things like the Antipodean albatross are going to be extinct within 20 odd years. And, you know, we've got creatures falling off the edge all the time. Um, Maui dolphin, you know, down to 54. <laughs> New Zealand is going to be, we're in a race with Mexico to be the next country that's going to send a marine mammal extinct. Like that is a terrible, terrible indictment on clean green New Zealand. So it's like the climate crisis, isn't it? It's too big to think about. And it seems like too massive a problem to tackle. And, you know, we're already rushing through lots of environmental regulation with the climate change um, legislation and all the changes that go with that and with the, you know, reform of the RMA. And there's just no urgency, which is really sad. It's awful when you're out there and you're holding, you know, one of these endangered bats in your hand and they're so fragile and so precious. And you're like, wow, we are killing these at a terrifying rate. Further to what Andrea said about the Maui, um, Steve Dawson, who's been studying Hector and Maui dolphins for decades, said to us, you know, that the country has to decide whether or whether not they you want, want cheap fish. fish and chips from the west coast of the North Island or Maui's dolphin, because you can't have both. So on that, why why is it that we can't do simple things like in that Maui area, extend the marine protected area and, and ban drift nets from it? That would be like a really simple way of trying to save a species, but it just seems too hard for the government. Well, it, that's the thing though, because it, it's, it, it is a simple solution, but then, then you get the fishing lobby and the big farm and all the other economic actors. And we went through this period with the previous government of talking about striking the balance between the economy and nature. But we lost that balance a really, really long time ago. And nature doesn't have any more room to move. There is no balance anymore. And so we have to start taking really controversial, unpalatable decisions and putting nature, which is the infrastructure that sustains us. It's the very thing that gives us food, oxygen, air, life. And we have to start putting that first and stop putting things like agriculture and mining and all these other things that bring in money, stop putting them first because we don't. if we don't have nature and we don't have healthy ecosystems and a healthy planet, then we don't have any of those things anyway. So it's they're really difficult really awful confrontational conversation but we just have to stop being so damn greedy basically in andrea's words they've been pooed on 
peed on and bitten in their quest to track down the most endangered of our species. Here's a moment when she had a close encounter with a large spider. <laughs> oh, do that, you give me the shits. <laughs> Jesus, you made me jump my camera. Well, I had a good shot. Sorry. This voice is good. <laughs> Andrew, go stand on the path. Sorry. So... Over the year that you've been working on this, what was the most difficult creature to find? Uh, <laughs> the Hochstetter's frog, which we we haven't seen uh, one of those. <laughs> well, we, we were close. We were really close, and we got halfway up a mountain, and... Um, I don't know. What would you call it, Andrea? Would you call it a? Would you call it throwing toys? I don't know. How would you describe that situation? Health and safety. It was health and safety. It was really, really, safety. really bad, really difficult terrain. And you know, I'm not a an experienced tramper by any means. I love a good walk, but climbing up a muddy, uh, steep cliff in, you know, my Kathmandu boots was not <laughs> was not. I, and and Ian had a I had a lot of equipment, and we were due to fly to the Chatham Islands the next week, and so I was just. Like in my mind, I was just like, one of us is going to break an ankle. This is really dangerous, and I'm not down with this. And also, I'm just blinking miserable. Um, so we we did. I pulled the pin, um, and you know we're a team. So if one goes, the other goes. So yeah, we didn't we didn't see any hoxsitters frogs, but we did we did film the beautiful Archie's frogs, which are a really really special creature that are very very endangered but luckily they have them at Auckland Zoo in captivity so we just <laughs> strolled up to the zoo after you know brunch at a cafe <laughs> that was much easier but it was awesome to get the frogs the bats and the snails in and shine a little light on some of the creatures that don't get quite as much attention as some of our other more colorful species you know just going back to the Hoxtetters frog where was that was that somewhere in the South Island no, we were we were in. Okay, you're going to laugh at me because it sounds really tame. But we were in um, Mangatangtree Mountain, the most beautiful, incredible fenced sanctuary in the Waikato. But we went we went off path, and these frogs live in streams, so we at the top of mountains. Well, I was going to say that wasn't the worst of uh, travels. I think that you know after we'd been down in the subantarctic and fairly high seas, and we spent a couple of weeks down there, we got out to go on a little fishing boat off the Bay of Plenty because um, we wanted to see the you know mitigation methods they were using to avoid catching bycatch because there are some really responsible uh, fishermen in New Zealand anyway so we went out with them on this little boat with bugger all swell and we got out there we'll be fine we'll be absolutely fine we're two weeks down in the southern ocean and all that sort of thing well you know we were fine until they slow the boat down, turn the engine off, bobble around, wait for the bait to go out. Andrea was the first to go. I lay down <laughs> on my back for about five hours, but because they weren't doing anything, it was just nighttime. Uh, Andrea was outside over the rail. It was bloody awful. It was easily the worst part of the trip. Gosh, you, you would have had to have had a lot of trust in the in the skippers and the people leading your walks into off the track and into really remote places. The Department of Conservation, they were a kind of an informal partner in this. We had had the full backing of um, the former CEO, Lou Sanson, was just right on board with this idea from the beginning. And he said, whatever you need, I'll make it happen. And we just had incredible people 
give up their time and their expertise from catching bats in the middle of Fjordland to, you know, opening the fridge where the, the Polyphanta Augusta snails are and spend, just spending hours and hours with us. Um, they have so much love and care for these creatures and you can't help but be infected by it. Like we went, we went to film the long-tailed bats in, in the Eglinton Valley with a man called uh, Colin O'Donnell, who's a principal science advisor for the department. And um, like, you, I don't really, bats are cool. Didn't really have much of an opinion on them either way. Um, but we, after spending a few nights with these beautiful creatures, we just completely fell in love with them. We, we did actually become a little bit batty about bats. <laughs> Everyone we could we talk to in the pub, we'd be talk, telling stories about these bats and just yeah, we got you a little catch bit. A bat, Andrea, how do you catch a bat? Well, you should watch the video for this. Our um, episode four it shows exactly how you catch a bat, and it's absolutely ingenious. So obviously, bats use echolocation, so they they don't see like we see. They um, they fly around. Um, basically shouting their heads off in the forest and we can't hear them. And they fly, these bats can fly at 60, between 40 and 60 kilometers an hour and they can grab a sand fly and eat it and without banging into trees and that kind of thing. So they're amazing. So you can't just put a mist net up or a bird net like you normally would. So they've got, they call them heart traps and they do actually look like the musical instrument. And they're basically bits of uh, what looks like fishing wire strung at different um, intervals and the bats it confuses their echolocation so they fly into it doesn't hurt them it's completely harmless they fly into these um, these lines and then they just basically slide down into this collecting bag this plastic collecting bag at the bottom and then they're real cute they're real social a lot of people don't know that about um, our native bats but they they're really really social so they all cuddle up together into this giant ball of fluffy batness um, and go to sleep and they're real chilled and they're just they weigh about 10 grams they're fluffy and they're and they have the most their wings are just insanely beautiful Ian's taken some incredible pictures of the bats i definitely urge you all to check them out but they are you know they're new zealand's only native mammal they're tiny they're you know they're really rare it's hard to see them they only come out at night but they're actually really important for the ecosystem and they're really great insecticides as well so yeah they're just they're just little marvels of nature as as are all the creatures in the series actually Mm. Let's end with a happy story that encapsulates Ian's lifelong passion for Kia. One found in Arthur's Pass is named after his 11-year-old son, James. But unfortunately, the Kia that we caught uh, had uh, lead poisoning that was off the charts. Laura took him to the animal hospital in Christchurch and they fixed him and released him in a beautiful little valley a few over from Arthur's Pass. I'm sure he's flying away happily eating berries rather than lead. You can track him. There's a Kia sightings database, which is an amazing citizen tool. If you see a Kia, um, because there's so so few of them, they reckon between three and 7,000. Many of them have got bands and they've got markings, so you can enter them in this database and then they can track them. And James is, is now in the database and so we can find out you know, where he was last sighted. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Adrian Holley engineered it. Thanks to Andrea Vance and Ian McGregor. Finally today, The Detail has been nominated for the Listener's Choice Award at the New Zealand Podcast Awards. 
If you enjoy our work, we'd love your vote. Just head to the New Zealand Podcast Awards website and follow the prompts. Mā te wā.